Turn in your Bibles to the book of Esther. I'm sure you've been spending a lot of time in that book lately. Maybe you have. I don't know. The book of Esther. Now, where is that book? Let's talk about that. Uh, If you'll go to the Psalms that are right in the middle of your Bible and turn left by two books, you'll find Esther. Esther is um, a unique book in many ways, but I think you'll find... Uh, that it is a a good word for us where we are now. We're going to take a little break from the Jesus We Need series and be looking at Esther 4, verses 11 through 16. Let's pray before we read. Lord God, we are in great need of you, we, as we reflect on the busyness of our lives, the transitions that are going on in our lives right right now, for many of us, coming and going, the transition from the summer to the fall, maybe it's a new grade in, in school, whatever we might be facing, Lord, we know that you know the outcome, you are there with us, you are walking with us. Lord, we know that we need your word. We pray that as we read your word this morning, that it would not be just an exercise that we're supposed to do. We pray that we would meet with you. You have promised that you would meet with us when your word is, is read and sung and prayed and preached. We pray that that would be true this morning. We pray that you would come with power, that you would meet us in your word as it is read and as it is preached. Open the eyes of our hearts. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Esther chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. This is God's word. All the king's servants... And all the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there's but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me... I have not been called to come to the king in these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. And Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do you think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews? For if you keep silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go. 
Gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold fast on my behalf. Hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will fast as you do. Then I will go to the king. Though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. For those of you who have read Esther, studied Esther, sat under any kind of teaching of Esther, you know this is a unique book in the Bible. God is not mentioned. God's name is not mentioned. There's no account of of prayer. There's an account of fasting, but no account of prayer. There's no worship. There's no temple. There's no miracles or visions. God coming down with fire or plague or judgment. God, in fact, appears to be completely absent in this book of the Bible. Where is he? It's only one of two books in the Bible named after a woman. The other one is Ruth. That's right. And Esther, as a person, does not start out very well at all. Again, if you know the book, if you know anything about Esther, I commend it to you. Read it. Esther does not start out very well. She's dishonest. She's deceitful. Esther is willing to play any game the culture tells her to play to make it to the top. She's willing to do whatever she needs to do. She's willing to make any compromises to make it to the top, to gain the throne, to gain the crown. She's willing to do it. The men in this culture are identified by and find their identity in wealth and power. The women in this culture tend to find their identity in what they look like. Their beauty. Their sensuality. All through the book we see raw power and beauty and sensuality and and violence. Esther's willing to do anything to get what she wants. The men around her are willing to do anything to get what they want. Boy, I'm glad we don't live in a culture like that anymore. Why are you laughing? This book is rich. It's practical. It's relevant for us. You've already recognized it. But something happens in this chapter, chapter 4, that really changes everything. Uh, There's a defining moment. There's a turning point in this book. You have defining moments. You have turning points. Uh, Many of you, I know what they've been. I've either seen it or you've told me. But many of your turning points and defining moments come when you least expect them to come. You get up in the morning, you do what you're going to do today or this week, and then something happens that changes everything. If it hasn't happened to you, it will. And it will happen more than once. 
as has already been mentioned in the service, maybe you're going to a different school, maybe you're going to junior high, maybe you're going to high school, maybe you're going to college, maybe you're going to grad school, maybe you just started seminary. Maybe you're facing a medical diagnosis. Maybe you're facing a treatment. Maybe you're facing a relational conflict with your mom or your dad or your brother or your sister or your friend or your coworker or your spouse. I don't know what it is for you, but you're probably walking into something hard and you're wondering how to do it. Well, this passage, in the few minutes we take in it this morning, will show us that we are all called, without exception, we are all called to courage. We are all called to community. We're called to do this with other people, the body of Christ. But what makes all of this possible is the defining moment in all of history. We have our turning points. We have our defining moments. We're called to courage. I'm called to courage. You're called to courage. We're called to community. And we're called to remember, to look at, to study, to place faith in the the defining moment in all of history. Call to courage. Esther is like a sweeping Hollywood epic or, or novel. In fact, there's been some really bad movies made about this book. It's powerful. The Jewish people find themselves in exile in Persia. Uh, This powerful Persian empire. They're away from their homeland. They're away from worship. They find themselves under the, the thumb of a despotic, capricious king, Xerxes. And Xerxes decides he's going to hold a great feast to celebrate himself. To celebrate his great victories. To celebrate his wealth and power. And he calls his beautiful queen, Queen Vashti, I want you to come, I command you to come and display your beauty before hundreds of drunken men. It's it's not a pretty picture, but hang with me. And she says, no, I'm not going to do that. She loses her crown. She loses the throne. And so what does Xerxes do? He calls for a beauty contest that will draw women against their will from all over the empire to replace his queen. And Esther is one of these women, and she wins the beauty contest. She plays by the rules of the culture, makes her to the top, Gets the crown, wins the throne. She starts out the story, the book, the narrative as a a trophy wife. Karen Jobes, who I think has written one of the best commentaries on this book, says this about Esther. Esther conceals her Jewish identity 
and plays to win the new queen beauty contest. She loses her virginity in the bed of an uncircumcised Gentile to whom she's not married and pleases him better than all the other virgins in the harem. How about that for a good start? It's not a good start. But in chapter 4, Esther's cousin, like a father figure, cousin and father figure, Mordecai, finds himself in deep trouble. He's alienated the man who is essentially the prime minister, Haman, of the empire. And Haman turns on him and, 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 and says, you kneel down to me. You kneel down to me. You worship me. Mordecai refuses. Haman determines to kill to destroy Mordecai, and who are your people, Mordecai, the Jews? I'm not only going to destroy you, I'm going to destroy your people. Folks, it's essentially one of the first, if not the first, holocausts of the Jewish people. And Mordecai comes to Esther, who's now the queen, and says, you've got to help us, you've got to go into the king, you've got to plead our cause. Help us, rescue us. You've got to do something. And he says these immortal words, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. You've got to go into the king. And Esther says, I can't. I haven't seen him for over 30 days. You don't just walk into the presence of the king of Persia. You get invited. You don't invite yourself. If I walk into the presence of the king, I could be killed. Of course, he changes her mind and, and says, fast for me. I'm going to put my life in the hands of the king. I'm going to walk into his presence, and if I perish, I perish. Now, most of us will never be in this circumstance. We'll never have to look at a decision that could cost us our lives at that very moment. But we are called. And by the way, if, if you're not a believer here today, I don't want to assume, if you're not a believer, if somebody made you come <laughs> this morning or, or you're seeking, you're curious, I'm going to talk to Christians for a minute and you can get some idea of what's expected of Christians. Just Just listen. We're called to do the right thing. When everybody else is doing the wrong thing, and particularly if everybody else is doing the wrong thing, we're called to do the right thing. We're called to do the right thing when nobody else is watching. And let me say that especially to men this morning. Men who are called to lead, which is every man. What are you doing when nobody else is looking? What are you looking at when nobody else is looking? When nobody knows. We're called to often walk, get up and walk into calm, hard, gracious, relational conversations with people. As I said before, it doesn't matter. Are you in junior high this morning? Are you in high school? Are you in college? Are you 
You have snow on the roof like me. You've been down the road. Wherever you, you are today. And we live in a crazy, upside-down, kooky world, do we not? I remember when I was, I was so excited when I was, this is just a few years back, I was so excited, I was going to get to go study at the University of Wales. Wales is one of the most beautiful places you've ever been. And in your mind's eye, you probably picture old castles and ivy and people with red faces. They, they look like, uh, maybe you're picturing hobbits. I don't know. I've, I've met some Welsh people who look like hobbits. And, and Tolkien loved that particular language. I won't get into that. But it's a beautiful place. And I walked up to the University of Wales, and where's the theology department? And I walked up to the theology department, and in the theology department there, it's three, three ways you can go in this same building. And it's labeled on the outside, Center for Religious Studies, Center for Christian Studies, Center for Islamic Studies. And you walk into the building and there's all kinds of art and idols and trinkets and jewelry and visual art from religions all over the world. And there was a very nice lady sitting there and I want to say, well, where's the Christian stuff? But that's the world we live in. How do we walk into that? I'll tell you how not to walk into it. I'll tell you how not to have courage. I was sitting in a coffee shop and a guy walked in and he looked like he'd run into a tackle box with his face. You know, he had jewelry all over his face, you know, studs and earrings and and tattoos and a backpack. And of course, what was I doing? Look at that guy. Well, he sits down, he takes off his backpack. Uh, he takes off his backpack. He pulls out a copy of C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. And he was obviously about two-thirds of the way through. The Lord has a way of convicting. It's one of my favorite books. That's how not to do it. Um, here's how to do it. Here's a, here's a guy. I, I want to briefly introduce you to somebody. Not here, but you can look him up. Some of you know Rachel Reese. She comes from time to time. She stands right over there. She plays the violin. Uh, she has heard this man and been around him. His name is Masaki Suzuki. No, it doesn't. That sounds like something with an engine or a motor in it. It's, it's a man's name. Uh, Masaki Suzuki. But what's so what? Masaki Suzuki is Japanese. He's a Christian. That, he's a Reformed Christian. He embraces Reformed theology like we do. He lives in Japan. He cuts against the grain in almost every way. His favorite musician is German, Johann Sebastian Bach. He's an orchestral dire director, and he, and he travels all the way. He's this winsome guy. He travels all, the, all around the world, and people admire him and look to him for his gifts and his talents. And he talks to people about Jesus Christ all over the world, and they're just awed by his gifts and his talents and how unique and different he is. And he's a person full of joy. Great example for us. One commentator puts it this way, battle 
is the milieu most of us associate with courage. But in a battle, courage is often the only, only alternative to death. In some ways, it takes more courage just to simply show up. And how true that is. We're called to courage, but we're also called to community. Don't try this without your friends, without your church, without your family, without the body of Christ. We live in a culture that says find yourself, express yourself, assert yourself, be yourself, empower yourself. Self, 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 self. Self. The Bible says die to yourself. And be born again. The Bible tells us that we find ourselves when we lose ourselves. That He must increase and we must decrease. I was watching the Hall of Fame induction ceremony. The NFL Hall of Fame induction ceremony yesterday. I didn't watch the whole thing, but part of it, it went on and on. But one guy stood up and he was giving his Hall of Fame induction speech. I won't tell you who it is. Hall of Fame induction speech. And he was talking about how I did this for you. This is for you. This is for the fans. And somebody out in the crowd said, we love you. And he said it. He said, I love you too, but I love myself more. I love you too but I, you can look it up. I love you too, but I love myself more. The culture's not going to be much help in this area. What we watch on TV, 99.999% is not going to help us in this area. It's going to work against us. The culture will often appeal. Does it not? Does not the culture often appeal to our pride? Our pride, uh, whether it's a, a superiority pride, man, I'm standing up here and I'm so glad I'm not like that person or that person or that person. I fast and I tithe and I go to church. I do all this stuff. Thank, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like that person, those people. But there's also what I might refer to as inferiority pride. The person says, oh, I can't do that, and I, I can't do that, and I'm too, and that's too hard, and I, I'm just, I'm not good enough. And I, that person is still thinking about himself or herself all the time, constantly. It's still constantly self-referential. As someone once said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Earlier in the service, we read from Romans 12, present your bodies as living sacrifices. I say to, to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. We are members one of another. What Esther does for the first time in her life 
She steps into the presence of the king, not knowing how he will respond, and she openly identifies herself as a Jew. And she openly identifies with her people. She openly identifies with her people for the first time. She finds a new identity, identifying herself with God's people for us I'm a Christian. Again, one commentator says, up to this point in the story, while Esther was pretending to be pagan, she was controlled by her circumstances. She has been passive in the story, not initiating action. Then comes this defining moment. She is faced with taking responsibility for the life that God has given her by identifying herself with the people of God. But let's not kid ourselves. The only way that this would be possible, the only way that this is possible, is by remembering the defining moment in history. If you, if you know how Esther ends, the king, the king receives Esther. The people are rescued. They're saved. The Jews are rescued, saved. And... Roughly 500 years later, another Jew comes along and he's faced with a very similar decision. To put his life in the hands of the ruling authorities. He also needs community. And everybody deserts him or falls asleep. When he most needs them. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus Christ faces a defining moment. The defining moment. Will you drink this cup of wrath for them? Will you give your life for them? Will you give your life in place of them? As a sacrifice. And not once did Jesus Christ ever say, Why should I? He hesitates. He recognizes what he's going to walk into. But not once does he say, why should I? His love holds out. This morning we're going to sing, my sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. The one person who ever lived, who never sinned, who was completely perfect, who did everything that God told him to do, lost his life. Gave his life for us. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is finished. Father, forgive them. One of my favorite chapters in the book I mentioned earlier in Mere Christianity is a book called, is a chapter in the book called, Is Christianity Hard or Easy? Is Christianity Hard or Easy? And 
A lot of people read Mere Christianity and they're not quite sure of the background. What you need to know is when this chapter was written, it was originally given as a radio address three months before D-Day. An entire nation is facing a defining moment. An entire nation is facing a defining moment. What do you say? And this is just a little bit from that chapter. Is Christianity hard or easy, is it? The ordinary idea, which we all have before we become Christians, is this. We take the starting point of our ordinary self with its various desires and interests. Then we admit that there's something else that we need to do. We call it morality or decent behavior. And this has claims on us. This is what we often mean by being good, giving into those claims. We are very like an honest man paying his taxes. He pays them, but then he hopes to get on with his life after he's done some good things. The Christian way is different, harder and easier. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self. I've come to kill your natural, fallen, prideful self. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here or there. I want the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the the tooth or crown it or stop it. I want to have it out. Hand over everything. All of you, the whole you, all your desires, everything. I will give you a new self. In fact, I will give you myself and my will will become yours. Place your life in the hands of the king. You need courage, you need community, you need the king. Place your, place your life, give him everything. And that will change everything. Let's pray. Lord, as we spend just these, these few minutes looking, looking back at this call to courage, this call to community, this call for us as Christians, this side of the cross, to remember the defining moment in history that makes all of this possible. Lord, we can't do any of this on our own. It's not about earning anything with you. It's not about climbing some kind of ladder of, of obedience closer to you or to heaven, making our way up. But we do see in the garden, we do see at the cross, we do see at the empty tomb that you gave us everything. We pray that we would give you everything. You gave us all you had to give. We pray that we give you all we have to give. Give us courage. Give us the community we need, the the small groups, the neighborhoods, the friends, the church, the church family that we need. 
we won't be walking into these things by ourselves. Lord, we know, even this morning, in our own community, we have experienced some real tragedies lately. And we face more difficult things coming up. And yet we remember from Philippians 2 that Jesus Christ did all these things for the joy set before Him. He gave His life. He gave us new life. He gave us community. He gave us each other. All for the joy set before Him. Knowing where He was going, we know where we're going. Before the very face of God, the face of Jesus Christ. Give us Your Word. Give us the Spirit. Give us Your sacraments. Give us the church. Give us one another. As we face our defining moments and our turning points. We lift up all of these things in the name of Him who came such a great, great distance for us, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.